Well, the summer is winding down, but the work for Bishop Frank is not. It rolls on. And so today, we're going to talk about um, some of his plans for parish reconfiguration here in the Diocese of Bridgeport. What does that mean for um, our pastors, our parishes, the people here? Also, related to this is uh, a discussion on vocations. Vocations of the priesthood, the religious life, and the diaconate. So, that's all coming up on today's Let Me Be Frank. Keep your radio right here at 1350 AM, or as you probably know, you can listen also on your phone using the Veritas mobile app. And if you are, yay, keep listening. If you don't have the mobile app, you can get it from the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner city, the reach of Foundations in Faith is broad and the impact is truly meaningful. For more information, visit foundationsinfaith.org. All right, here we go. I am Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Excellency. Yeah? As the summer comes to an end? Yeah. (laughs) This summer was so busy, it didn't feel like summer. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I thought maybe it was me, you know, but it it was the busiest summer I ever remember. Yeah, I thought last summer with in the middle of COVID, everything locked down was really busy, and I thought it was just because of that. But now, you know, I'm, I mean, I know Delta's around, but things are, are op- more open, and it's still crazy. Yeah, it is, and this, and, and again, it, it's funny. I, I was on the phone with. Uh, a priest, one of our pastors here in, in the diocese, and he said that the young people, it's just, they're just hurting. Um, even the good kids are hurting. So there's a lot of time that you gotta support these kids and young people, and you shouldn't call them kids, but, and yeah. that just adds to the busyness, right? It's important right. work, but it's, summer used to be very quiet, but this year in particular. Yeah. I, I was in the office more than I was anywhere else during my vacation. Just to make sure that it wasn't a pile that would be insurmountable when you right. come back. Yeah. Right? Well, and mm-hmm. you, as it is, I mean, you've been on the move ever since you landed here eight or whatever years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I watch, you've really been working hard to revitalize the diocese mm-hmm. in many ways, some ways that are, that are frankly, revolutionary. Um, and seemingly, well, it never you, stops, man. Excellency. <laughs> no, and what we're about to talk about today is just the next chapter, which is going to have huge implications for the whole life of the diocese. Many dioceses have undertaken this. And I have a particular way of understanding this process and how it could, even though it will be somewhat laborious and it will be somewhat disruptive, 
But I believe there's a way to do it with minimum disruption and actually engage people in some really critical conversations for the future of the church. And I'm talking about what's called dun, 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 parish reconfiguration, which I particularly don't like as a terminology. Okay. But what it, what it really is about is right-sizing the patrimony that we have to fit mission. Mm-hmm. So um, the question that we could begin with is simply saying this. When does the benefit of one age become a liability of another age? We as a church, particularly here in New England and the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic states, we have the patrimony of a time in the church's life when the church was booming because of waves and waves and waves of immigrants who came with needs no different than the immigrants in our own age now, many, many times of which are Asians, Hispanics, and Latinos. And those immigrants came in a time when the economy allowed plentiful work for those who may not have been well-educated. So they worked hard. They worked hard and they were generous. And because they were not welcomed in larger American society, which was Christian, but Protestant, the church came to their aid and worked with them to build what I call our patrimony. That is our schools, our parishes, our churches, our hospitals, our nursing homes, our universities, um, everything we now have. And in those days, that patrimony was absolutely necessary. Simply for the sheer numbers of Catholics who would come to parish in a time when you could not conceive that you would go to any other church than your local church because many times your local church was an ethnic church. So if I was Italian or Albanian or Czech or whatever it may be, then my forebears built it. We worshiped with the cultural flavor of our ethnicity, our country, even though mass was in Latin at the time, right? In the 40s, 50s, even to the early 60s. And um, so that was your parish. And then we had the mainline parishes where these were the children of these immigrants that formed some of the largest parishes in the country. And that was all by geography. And we've talked about that many times. So you wouldn't think of going to a parish on the other side of town because this was your church. I mean, you, you went there, that was it. Okay, so now, so we built this huge apparatus and now we have to say to ourselves, can we afford it? And even if we can afford it, should we spend all of this money and resources on supporting it, does that actually put the cart before the horse? Because it was all built to support God's people. Now, are we migrating to the point where God's people are supporting the buildings? And is that where we want to be? So that's really what is going to be at the forefront of what we will be doing over the next two or three years. Now, when I say this, 
people become very anxious. Yeah. Oh my goodness, they're going to create some master plan. They're going to close my parish. They're going to right. And in many dioceses, unfortunately, that is exactly what they did. Now I feel very strongly that is not what we should do. But rather, parish reconfiguration is going to be a process that says, let us ask some very difficult questions in every community and realize that there are different strengths and weaknesses in every community. And we want the strengths to become stronger and the weaknesses to become strengths. And if you look at yourself, yourself, myself, as let's say simply body and soul, then in a parish that's a community of individuals, the believers, who have this patrimony at their disposal, they have to ask themselves two basic questions. First is, are we pastorally vibrant? Are we a community that is on fire for the faith, that forms its people in the faith, that prays in a way that engages the mind and heart, that calls its people out into mission and service, that is growing with vocations to the priesthood, to religious life, to married life, right? That is a place where young people are gonna be loved and challenged. In other words, are we really truly a family of faith? And do we have the resources, do we have the means to support that family? And what do we need to support that family? So now, how many people who are listening to this podcast have downsized their homes when they become empty nesters? When you had a family of four or five children and you had a house with six bedrooms or five bedrooms because you needed it. I mean, otherwise people would have killed each other, right? So you have this house and, and you made the sacrifice to, and then suddenly you're in a house with five bedrooms and you only need one. <laughs> and even when the kids come back and grandkids, you say to yourself, well, what, what, what is, do I need this? Since nobody, nobody is coming all at once, right? So what do you do? You take your patrimony and you downsize it to fit your family and its needs. So we kind of do it often, but now we have to do it as a church and figure out what is it that we need to do to go forward. Right? So that's really going to be the last piece of the administrative renewal of the diocese, but quite frankly, it's not administrative. It starts with nuts and bolts, but it's really the spiritual and pastoral renewal of the diocese. Does that make sense so far? So far, yes. Yeah, it makes sense, Excellency. What, what, do, you, what do you think then are um, some, of the, some of the big obstacles right now that are pre preventing parishes from being those vibrant centers of, of faith that you described? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Some known, some, some unknown, some seen, some unseen. Like, for example, right, the very environment in which we live is enticing people right, to see religion as a personal and private enterprise, when in fact it is personal but never private. And because that which is personal can devolve into something that's private, 
then we've spoken about this many times. So then the, the need for an existing community is not important. So we have disaffiliation simply because people do not think they need an established community or the church as the community, the mystical body in their search for God. So that's all over. And we talked about how that has infiltrated inside the church, why there's so much division in the church, okay? Yes. But then there are other issues too, and that is there are some self-fulfilling prophecies. If a, if, a, if a parish has a predominantly older population, for younger families and young people, there may be a hesitancy to join that sort of community or become active or to be the pioneers to bring others to activity because you got to change, you, you got to add to, change the culture, change the perceived needs that an older population may instinctively and naturally come to, to understand what a parish should do, right? That's why it's interesting, churches that are reviving, parishes that are reviving with young families, those young families are traveling from many parishes to those families. Those are not geographically only in those parishes because young families attract other young families. So one of the questions is, how do you get some young families involved and persevere so others can start joining, right? Yes. So that's that, that dynamic too. And then we have clergy. Okay. Clergy are like God's people. They come in every shape and size. Right? They come with gifts and talents and liabilities and faults, and they have their share of sins, as does your bishop. We all do. Right? Since the numbers have diminished, then the question becomes who among the clergy is truly competent? to be a pastor. Because if someone leading a parish is not competent, the parish community will suffer. You, I've, I've told you the old Italian saying, right? The fish stinks from its head. We said it that before, right? But the reverse is true too, that the fish smells lovely when the head is healthy, mm. fresh, enticing, right? Beautiful to see. Tremendous to eat, right? So the same is here. So then one of the issues that I'm going to advise our listeners to give consideration to is when we look at this process, we have to look at this process, which will take a number of years to go through. And we'll talk about how those stages will look like. But when you look at that process, you have to see your particular parish in the larger constellation of the diocese. So in the end, as the shortage of priests begins to really affect the parish's life, the lives of all the parishes of the diocese, we have to ask ourselves a very hard question. For example, there is a parish in this diocese where there are 36 students enrolled in religious education. In total, 36 students. There are parishes in this diocese where there have been zero baptisms. Zero. And not necessarily for the fault of the pastor. It's demographics, at part. It, it is a trajectory of a parish that has pastorally declined over time. And yet those parishes may actually have money in the bank. And the people who are left are very generous to try to pay all the bills. 
But if we're going to really do this process correctly, we have to ask ourselves, well, could that community be better served by collaborating with another community, which is different from that community merging with another community? Mm. Those are the sort of things. And can that priest's Gibson Towns be better utilized over a larger group of individuals so that he can be the leaven for a greater renewal of the church. And it may sound almost as if, well, we're happy and we're managing, but I as the bishop don't have the luxury to say, well, this community is holding on because the task the Lord has given me very clearly in my prayer is that this is the moment when I want my church to be pruned like the vine so it can grow mightily, grow abundantly. But pruned, not hatcheted. Pruned. Right. right. <laughs> this difference. Yeah. That... So maybe, uh, I don't know uh, how much of the details you are willing to share today, but maybe we can start, you can start outlining okay. some of those things. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most of it is in principles, not so much in detail. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. But one of the principles that's going to guide the process is that the people of God at least the leadership of our parishes, needs to be involved in the, um, in the discernment. We started pastoral planning many years ago, and then it went into hiatus because there was resistance in a lot of the parishes to completing the plans they created. But in fact, I was already intuiting that that was the harbinger of this other process, which would now affect change. We need to ask the people of our parishes, how do they assess the pastoral vibrancy of their parishes? Not simply through numbers, not simply against a standard of, well, this is okay, but against the standard of what could we have here? What should we have here? And hold yourself to those challenges, those benchmarks are the real challenges, right? So the first principle is there's nothing coming from on high and saying this is how it's done. But what it will be is from on high, there is an analysis that's going on that will then give a clear picture to our pastors. They share with their people that says these are our strengths and weaknesses. And this is how we're going to be judged in pastoral vibrancy and I'm going to say administrative and financial solvency. And we have to answer the question. Okay, uh, what do we do? Can we do this on our own? Do we have to join forces with people nearby? A parish? And again, joining forces does not mean we merge or the parish closes. It means in these areas, one, two, three areas, we should be working together, not trying to duplicate those services. Whether it is, for example, religious education or youth ministry or whatever else it may be. Can these two parishes raise their vibrancy by hiring a single DRE to serve two communities that could bring the kids together because the kids don't see the artificial lines in a parish, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so that's the sort of, now it could be that the challenges are so great that we have to ask ourselves, well, could the parish staff in its totality be merged? Not the parishes, but the staff. So that a parish could have, two parishes could have one DRE, one parish secretary, one business manager, 
one plant facilitator, whoever, whatever the staff is, to serve both churches. And why is that important? It's important because not only does it save finances, right, so that you create greater stability, but you have money now to invest in the pastoral life of the parish so you could go to greater vibrancy. Right? It's not to put money in the bank. It's to spend it on God's people who will then give you more resources because they're being fed, right? I've not seen a pastor, and I have not yet seen a parish that is pastorally on fire, that's financially in distress, except in those areas where those individuals do not honestly have the financial resources. And we have parishes like that. Right. And they are giving generously, but they have nothing else to give. And then my response to that is the family of churches, the communion of churches needs to help that parish. It's like having 60 brothers and sisters and one is hurting, the other 59 have to come to their aid. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes. So that's one principle, right? It's gotta be an assessment. And, and therefore the second principle is we wanna have the minimum amount of structural change. Right. So once you do an assessment, then you say, okay, this is the amount of collaboration we need. This is the amount of things we need to change and no more than this to achieve both goals. Right. Versus a cookie cutter that says, boom, we're all gonna merge. We're gonna merge these into this, these two into this, three, because that doesn't actually achieve the goal. Right. So the second principle is gradual change Minimum change that's necessary, but there will be change that's necessary. And then in the end also, my friend, I think we have to look at the clergy themselves. There will be clergy that will be rearranged because I myself have to look at now, not just gifts and talents, but age of priests, their health, so that priests do not enter into a situation that overwhelms them. That's not healthy for them spiritually or for their people. And quite frankly, we have a misalignment in the diocese that there are some parishes that have two priests that really should only have one, and there are parishes that have one priest that really should have two or three. So we have to rearrange things. Now, I would be a liar if I said to you, there will be no mergers, because there will be. And there will be no closures, because in fact, there could be. I'm not saying there will be, but there could be. We will see how things evolve over time. Yeah. But the only thing I could tell our listeners, I don't like surprises. I do not like surprises. All right? So I don't want a, someone to come in and say, oh my goodness, so where did this come from? All right. So this will take a while to do, mm -hmm. but it holds tremendous possibility for the renewal of our diocese. Yeah. Is, is part of this then also, you mentioned in the past, um, an idea of, um, of bringing priests together to, to, to live in community? Exactly. Okay. Part of it. Exactly. Right. If there are 79 rectories that are operating in this diocese, and I'm making this up, okay? So I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but mm -hmm. at least 35 of them, at least 35 of them, 
have only a single priest living there. You have to ask yourself the question, right? Is that financially sensible and is that pastorally and spiritually wise to do that? And in this reconfiguration process, you could almost imagine um, a spokes and a hub where in an area there's a rectory that has basic services for priests. There's not the Hilton, but basic <laughs> services, right? Mm -hmm. That they live together, but they are pastors of different parishes or serve in different parishes. Yeah. Right? And one would say, well, my pastor's not going to live in my parish. Well, uh, but he's living uh, three, three miles away in the parish next door. And no matter where he lives, he's getting in his car to come to your house. Right. So what's the issue? <laughs> it's also so beneficial for the priests, isn't it, Excellency? I mean, there's something to be said about living with brothers. Right. Even when you clash sometimes, there's, there's growth and, and some, just something good about that. Oh, I absolutely agree. But the difficulty is, Steve, that when you live alone, you become comfortable living alone. You become comfortable going to McDonald's or having pizza or, or calling out, right, for food to come in. You're comfortable praying alone. And there are some personalities where that's great. But for some personalities, it can be quite dangerous. Yeah spiritually dangerous. And then there's one other piece of this puzzle that is going to be very controversial. Controversial, but at this point in my life, let's be frank, shall we? Okay. And that is, a parish is not truly a Catholic parish unless it has one eye on the needs of its people and one eye in the needs of God's people, diocesan-wide and globally, for we are one church. And there is this sense in this diocese among certain parishes where we make the, the annual Catholic appeal, that's an important. The We Stand With Christ, we had one parish with 18% of its goal achieved. You know what that's telling me? You must be a lovely community, but that's not a Catholic parish. That, that looks congregational, but yeah. not Catholic. Yeah. Because the needs of our people, all of our people, are the concerns of all of our people. Yeah. And that's something we're also going to crack this nut here. Because the, the, I, I told the pastors once before, you are both the symbol of unity within your people, chief catechist, chief presider at the sacraments and liturgy, but you're also the symbol of communion with the diocese in its bishop. So you don't come to uh, diocesan meetings, you don't get clued into what we're doing, then what you're basically doing is only doing half your job. Does that make sense? No, you can't do the half your job. So this has potential for many years to have lots of conversations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's obviously important when you look around, you know, even as a layperson and you just see buildings that aren't being used and as you said, uh, religious education systems that have only a couple dozen kids in a big town uh, in them and things like that. I mean, there's something needs to be done and, you know, you're on it, Excellency. Yeah, and, and we got we to gotta change the narrative. We have to start exciting people about the faith. We have to be able to say to them, we're not in decline. 
but the Lord has given us this plateau from which we are to grow. We're to take seriously the words of the Lord, I will be with you always until the end of time. There is not a defeatism here. There isn't a, a reason for, to be discouraged. There's a reason to get up and start acting, to start taking the challenge, the bull by the horns, and say, there is truth in the old saying that sometimes in life, what appears to be one step back is actually 10 steps forward. Hmm. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. With that, Excellency, let's take a quick break um, and we can continue on the other side. But you are listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. And we'll be right back. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Um, Excellency, I love what you were saying at the end of that segment. It, you know, as you were saying that, it, we should not be discouraged we are in the position of power and action. And yeah, you know, when, you, when I think about that, uh, that passage from the gospel that says, you know, um, when Jesus tells his apostles, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And a lot of people think, well, that means that as Satan attacks us, we're going to be okay. But really, I mean, if the gates of hell are, you know, need to be prevailed against or I don't know if I'm saying it right, but that means that we're on the offensive against the gates of hell, actually, because we're exactly. at the gates of hell and they will not right. prevail. Right, right. And I have to say that we need to resist uh, uh, what I'm going to describe, and this is a poor way of describing it, falling into a mild sense of depression for the future of the church. The sense that the glory days are over. I would like to contend the glory days are ahead of us. And what we have gone through is a great purification for what looked like what was blossoming and growing had some major issues which have come to the fore in the last 30 or 40 years. So now it's like going to the doctor and hearing the diagnosis, you have a serious disease, but it is not fatal, but you're going to have to go through some really tough times and you're gonna beat it, and you're gonna be stronger. That's exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah. Right? You know, I, I think one of the keys here, in my mind, another principle in reconfiguration, is to find ways to free up priests to be priests. Not to be uh, landlords, real estate agents, accountants, um, grand administrators. Now, all of that activity is important. It's the responsibility of a pastor to monitor that. But we don't have enough priests to be able to do all that and the pastoral work of the church. When I was ordained and I had four of the priests living with me, the pastor was the administrator and he enjoyed doing it. And there are pastors now in our diocese who enjoy being administrators. 
But, but we were not ordained, myself included, to be ministrators. We were ordained to be spiritual fathers to God's people. And whatever we do has to, has to free up our pastors from the anxiety, the worry, and the time needed to do some of the things that they are doing now because there's no one else around to do it. Now, you may say, all right, Bishop, come on, stop it already. You get it. Because there's lots of people who want to volunteer, lots of people who want to, uh, to give up their time and talent, they're professionals. I mean, my gosh, they're, they're, some of them run companies. And my response back is, you are absolutely correct. They do. And sometimes pastors are hesitant to ask for that help. And we have to help our pastors and priests and deacons to, uh, to, to become truly co-responsible and collaborators. However, one of the things we also have to change is where the responsibility ultimately lands. So for example, I've heard many a pastor, and I myself when I was a pastor, and now even as a bishop, I have said, I welcome this help, for these people are truly committed and we will work together and get this done. And 99% of the time, it's fantastic. 1% of the time, it collapses. And when it collapses, the responsibility lands on the lap of the pastor. And therefore, at times, pastors have relied on help. And the help did not the help did not bring to conclusion the project at hand. And then he found himself in the situation where it took more work to fix it than it would have been to do it. And many a pastor says, then I will do it myself. If I'm ultimately responsible, then I need to be involved in every step. And that's a dilemma. That really is a dilemma that we have to think through to give our pastors real comfort that if they're getting help from whoever's helping them, that those people will also take responsibility to the extent that's possible to own up for when it doesn't work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, definitely. You couldn't get away so, with that in a business, you know, at work. Right, right. But you can in a family. And that's exactly what we are, right? You see it among siblings. Well, you told him to do it. <laughs> All right, you do it for me. Come on, don't you love your mother? Go do it, take the garbage out. <laughs> All right, and that's simple. It's kind of almost silly, but, but in this family, it always lands in the, in the lap of the spiritual father if something doesn't work well. So a perfect example, perfect example, which I myself now as bishop, in this process, we need to discern. In the safe environment regulations, where to make sure that the list of volunteers are correct, that everyone is virtuous trained, everyone is background checked, which is absolutely essential to make sure that our children are safe, because everybody should be doing that, not just the church. Every organization, every institution, every corporation, every society, everybody should be doing it for the sake of our kids. Okay, having said all that, if it's not done correctly, right? or uh, an accounting report is not done correctly, who do you think gets the notice? The pastor. Yeah. Right. 
So right. part of what we have to reimagine is if there's a person, all right, who's in charge of this, all right, like for example, in safe environment, our Erin Neal, who is just phenomenal at this work, she's absolutely gifted, she's phenomenal, she's one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. She does work with the local parish safe environment coordinators. She does not go straight to the pastor, okay? Which is tremendous, tremendous. We're beginning here to shift, but in some of these activities, the only person the pastor delegates is himself. So it's part of a culture change, it's part of, a, 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 of an attitude of really being collaborative and cooperative with people giving them the, the responsibility to raise their gifts and talents to the use of the larger community, and quite frankly, holding them responsible for it. So I think there's a lot to be done here. Oh, gosh, if we could do this in the next five years, our diocesan church will be totally transformed. Mm -hmm. Totally transformed. Yeah. I think um, that shift that you're talking about, it is important um, mostly for the laity, I would say. I mean, as much for the pastors, but when we, if I go to my pastor and I say, hey, Monsignor, we should really have this in the church. I mean, his response should be, great, go ahead and start it and I'll oversee it, right? But right, you exactly. do the work. Right, exactly, exactly. Particularly in a parish like yours, which is huge. Yeah. It's huge. Right. Yes. It's huge. Right, which then goes to the last piece of this puzzle, and that is the priests and deacons themselves, who are an, a precious asset, gift to the church. We need to discern a number of things. Number one, we've talked about how do we support them. Yes. Right. The second thing we need to discern is how do we give our pastors, priests, and deacons constructive feedback that is not simply complaining? Mm -hmm. So to your point, if I don't like something, why are you burdening the pastor or your local priest or deacon by saying, I don't like this because this is not working. Fine, you may be completely legitimate, but why would you not also then say, and I've given thought and perhaps allow me to suggest this, this, and this, of which I'm happy to help you to do. Yes, yep. Right? Yeah. Like for example, in, in your own family, does that not work that way? Right, if, this, if something is not working, someone may raise the issue, but then you also are going to be challenged to find the solution to it or help in the solution. Not just say, because the other is consumerism, my friend. The other is, I'm coming to Mass for a product. I'm coming to Mass for a service. No, you're not. You're coming to Mass to be saved. You're coming to Mass to encounter the, cruc the crucified Lord in the moment when you see the Eucharist. That's why you're coming to Mass. This is not, we're not a service-oriented corporation. We're the mystical body of Christ. <laughs> right? So everybody has complaints. Gosh, we all do. But, but, but so, because that aids our priests and our, and our clergy. Because they weren't ordained just to be problem solvers or, 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 or to please people. They were there to stand with the truth and to preach the gospel and to celebrate the sacraments and be a father 
to people. And then we have to raise up new men. Yes. Right? Invocations. Yes, yes right? definitely. Now, let me tell you, you're the father, right, of, of young men. Mm-hmm. You, you're a man of faith. You're involved in your parish. Okay. You, have you ever encountered a young man or a young woman? But let's, let's focus solely on priesthood for the moment. Young man in the church it's at Mary's or anywhere. Pious, devout, seemingly interested, on fire with the faith. And you said to yourself, that person, that young man could be a priest. Has it ever happened to you? Yes, it has. A handful of okay. times. And what'd you do? Uh, in the cases, uh, in the couple cases, well, well, first of all, we do that a lot with our two boys at home. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. So, yeah. And you're a bad example. <laughs> but we, I've known a couple uh, young men who, um, uh, who are not my sons, who have, you know, really um, just shown a, a real fire for the faith. Um, and, you know, and we've said it. We said, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever... Good for you. Good um, for you. And the reaction? From those two guys, they said, yeah, I'm open to it, to their credit. Um, And we just, my, uh, Rula and I just saw two, I think they're teenage boys at church recently over the past couple weeks who we don't know, but we highlighted to certain people here and said, you should keep your eye on this guy and... Loop yeah, him in a little bit. Because he may have a vocation. Yes. I think in the end, I think you did the absolutely essential first step is to say something. When you see something, say something. Right? And then perhaps to find a way where in a, in a non-intrusive way to be present with that young man or young woman for religious life it just as a support. Not as a bludgeon. Well, are you going? Are you going? No, stop. <laughs> All right. But, but to show genuine concern. You know, I think what we have to come to terms with in this reconfiguration process is one of the barometers of health is how many vocations to priesthood, diaconate, and religious life have come out of a parish. Yeah. And there are parishes that have not generated vocations for 40 years. Something is not right. There's another criteria too, my friend, and that is how many conversions to the faith do you have in a community? How many adults are coming to faith? That is a a barometer of individuals perceiving not just in their relationship with Christ, but the relationship with the community, the church, a value so great that they're willing to become a member. That's the barometer, not just of a relationship with Christ, but the health of this parish. Yes. They want to be part of it, right? So when it comes to vocations, it's extremely important that we in this process make it one of our highest priorities that Catholics all around this diocese begin to talk about vocations, affirm young people and older people in their vocations, to be able to be a, 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 
a, a, now I was going to say consoling, but a presence that not just accompanies, but encourages, encourages vocations. And praise for them, praise for them. Yes. Okay. In my mind, when we come out the other end of this process, Eucharistic adoration should be embedded in the life of every parish. The regular celebration of the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of reconciliation, should be embedded in every parish. These centers of mercy and adoration that we created, they, we, every parish would be, we don't need to call them that anymore, every parish should be that. Every parish should have the celebration of mass that is reverent, beautiful, intentional, that is in consonance with the larger tradition of the church, where it engages the mind and the heart. You want to grow vocations? That's how you grow vocations. There are more vocations in the contemporary church coming out of Eucharistic adoration than anywhere else. Why? Because it's an act of beauty in a sterile world. We've talked about this. So, so parish reconfiguration, this whole process, is really a call to arms to reimagine and reinvigorate every parish. And when we do that, vocations has to be on the high part of the list of priorities as to what we identify. Every parish should be identifying young people, accompanying young people, praying for young people, praying for the universal church. Because they live in a world that tells them you shouldn't be a priest, you're crazy to be a religious, it's all about sexual gratification, material possessions, and it's all about me. Am I right or wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm with you, Excellency. How much do you think, um, so when my kids were younger, they went to a school where there were good, really such good priests coming through and there all the time, and they saw them, they got to know them, and they were like normal guys, except they were priests, they were, you know, and um, mm -hmm. so how much do you think our schools can or should play a part in this? I know, like, for example, St. Joseph's in Trumbull has been like a vocations factory. All right. All right. Well, I guess the question is, what I struggle with in my life is that you make choices in the day to how do you spend your time best? And so the answer to your question is, it would be ideal to have priests in our schools on a regular basis. But if they're going to be in our schools, they can't do something else. Right. And if it's a question of doing this pastoral, mini, uh, pastoral ministry or that pastoral ministry, then they have to discern at the moment what is the greater good. But many times priests are caught between this pastoral ministry and that administrative work. Right. And that is where I think this process has to address that question. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely, presence is key. But I am going, maybe I'm getting older, I know I'm getting older, and I don't think I'm getting too cranky, sometimes a little cranky. But we do have to go back to the basics. Priesthood is not exclusively a liturgical sacramental reality. It's not, it never has been. Because there's also the munera of teaching, right? besides the munera of sanctifying. And there is the munera, the three goods of governance. But having said that, I think our young people ideally should meet a priest in their schools, if they're Catholic schools, 
but they can ordinarily meet their priest at Sunday Mass. Yeah. In the sacraments. So if they're coming to, if they're coming into their schools as the icing on the cake, tremendous. But it can't be the cake if these young people are not being brought to mass by their parents. Yes. Yep. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that makes sense. Yep. And and then again, how are you going to entice adults to come to mass if they're not coming to mass? Because in effect. They are, they, they are very busy and they're trying to do all these things, in which case, as I've said many times, capture their hearts. Everything else will come. Captivate their imagination and everything else will come. It's not necessarily always, first and foremost, the intellectual engagement of a homily well-delivered. Yeah. That's very good. But it's captivating their heart so that when they come forward in the state of grace, worthily to receive Holy Communion, that moment is like a moment that has eternal, lasting effect. That is what we need. And once that happens, everything else falls into place. So, when you go to Mass in these parishes, you ask yourself, was my heart touched? Was my soul uplifted? Or was I entertained? Well, you're entertained, you go to concert too, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry I'm being stark here, but you go to Mass to, be, to encounter the Lord who's going to caress your heart, who's going to wipe your tears away, who's going to speak to you in the depths of who you are, who will also open your mind. But, but it, it's a personal encounter in the community. And unfortunately, in the modern world that sees group activity as entertainment, as to keep my attention. Let me tell you something, my friend. If my mother or father were in front of me now, they would capture my attention. Hmm. The risen Lord is, in, is with us at Mass. How come he's not capturing our attention at times? Yes. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. And all this process is going to ask those hard questions. So we're going to have lots of heated discussions, even among the clergy about this. I have no doubt in my mind. But yeah. now that I'm old, what difference does it make? <laughs> No, I hear you, Excellency. I mean, the Mass has to be something otherworldly and different for young people to be like, okay, something's happening here. Uh, which I don't experience anywhere else. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. And you know what? I like it. Because now I'm beginning to feel things I've never felt before. Exactly. Exactly. But it's not just young people. I, I, I joke about being old. I'm not old. But now that I'm older, I want the same thing. And when I pray, please God, when I celebrate Mass, I try the best of my ability to, to, to allow the Lord to touch my mind, my heart, and my soul, particularly in my soul, my will, that I could be an instrument of his presence. 
Sometimes people will experience that and sometimes they won't. But the truth is that's the work of grace in their lives. But I as the celebrant need to be disposed. I'm not there to, for an agenda. I'm not there to entertain. I'm not there to do anything other than I entering into my relationship with the Lord. And that he could use this sack of bones for his purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, and everybody else does the same. same. Before we need to break, I want to ask you, because we talked a lot about young people and their vocations. Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously to the priesthood, whether it's diocesan or to an order, and uh, young women with religious, religious orders line. as well. I, I don't want to give short shrift to um, the older uh, uh, vocations of um, the diaconate. Amen. As a former director of the diaconate, dear to my heart. And there are, there's an army of men, most of whom are married, with the loving support of their spouses, their wives. The loving support of their wives. There's an army of individuals, right? Men, good, faithful, young, old, who are being called to the diaconate right now, and no one has ever asked them. How would they know? No one. How would they know? Yes. Or when or someone what? holds a mirror up to them. <laughs> you, well, yeah, you're right. So explain, explain that, because that, yeah, that's a great. Yeah, you hold up the mirror and say, "Hey, Steve, you know what? You're you, first of all, you're a man who loves his faith, and it shows." You're a loving husband, and you're a great father with your kids. You're always active in church, and you seem to really have a great love for the people who are in need, and you do it so effectively. Did you ever consider the fact, right, when you look yourself in the mirror, that the Lord is calling you to a vocation where you could be a living sacrament of all I just described for everybody else in your parish? because you are already doing it. And sometimes when I've said that to, to men, they look at me as if, it, it's like they're shocked. But the same thing applies, thank you for saying that, same thing applies for the diaconate as it applies for, for priesthood or consecrated life. You gotta go up and say, you know, Joe, Harry, Frank, Jeva? Yeah. And you know what I've experienced all these years? Is that the wife many times will say, I've sensed it in my husband for the longest time. Because who knows you better than your wife? Your wife right. knows you better than yourself. And that is why that vocation is so intimately tied to, to a wife if, if a candidate is married. Because without the wife's permission and support and enduring support, it can't be done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Sure. And then one day we should talk about marriage because that's the vocation that, believe it or not, is in even greater crisis than yes. the priesthood. I believe it. Yep. Mm -hmm. You look at the assault in society. We'll, we will talk about that. In the meantime, Excellency, let's take another break and we'll be back with a listener question. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We will be right back. Why do we need Catholic radio? because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio's there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, 
whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology, I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, so we've come to the point of the show where we have a listener question. And um, and so here we go. I'm not going to waste any time. I'll dive in. Bishop Frank, what is the biggest thing you wish families would do more of? I, I'm torn. Can I have two answers? Sure. Two answers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so it, it's, um, it's the three F's that I talk about. Right? So it's food, family, and faith. So actually what holds food and faith together is family. So ideally, I would like to see families intentionally, consciously, in a disciplined way, eat together, spend time at the table together. And if that experience begins and ends with prayer, that's the trifecta. That is where you have food, family, and faith in one place. And what do we do at Sunday Mass? It's family, food, and faith. Only the food is the celestial food, which is the Eucharist. So apart from coming to Mass, I want you also in your families to find the time to share a meal on a regular basis and offer thanks beginning and end because that will teach families to do the same thing on Sunday when they come in blessing to receive the food of eternal life. Amen. I love that. It's so hard also to sit down all together because everybody's so busy these days. But um, that's, that's fantastic. Well, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. Who or what do you think in the end is going to make us less busy than us? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> There's that mirror again. <laughs> okay. So if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And we have a big thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thanks for another great week. Thank you, you, my friend. Thank you. It's always a great pleasure. Really, you're a great guy. (laughs) Despite what they say about you, you're a great guy. (laughs) Uh, I think I definitely need a blessing. I'm going to ask if you would give all of us a blessing. (laughs) The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your weekend, my friend. Thanks, Excellency. You too. I'll see you next week. <laughs>